0: Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Josh Lindsey from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with us is our documentary filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Josh. Thanks for being here. Hi, Christian. (laughs) How are you? Good. I gotta say, uh, Christian's got a really cool, I don't know if you're listening or, or excuse me, watching or not, but Christian's got a cool new setup with her mic, her headphones. Also new backdrop. She's looking pretty professional while the rest of us look, well, at least Mindy and I look, you know, <laughs> great. Jason always looks good on his $30,000 camera, <laughs> but uh, great to see you, Christian.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I'm in my new booth. It's I'm so happy that my renovation is moving along and now I can actually start to work from home. That's nice. Anyway.
0: And uh, laughing in the background is Jason. Hello, Jason. How are you? Good. How are you? Good,
1: good. I just want to talk about a a little bit. If you're not following Jason on Twitter, you are missing a lot of cinnamon (laughs) reviews. Uh, Yeah, and a lot of dad jokes. I've been uh, enjoying your cinnamon reviews. He reached 4,000 followers on Twitter this week, and so he did a review of cinnamon stuff. And so (laughs) he's definitely one to watch on Twitter.
2: Yeah, that was was a bit weird. I did cinnamon roll uh, flavored coconut milk which uh, was terrible. (laughs) And I couldn't tell until I dumped it out because it was so bad that it is a really odd brown color. And (gasps) yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. (laughs) That's a spoiler for the review. It's not good.
0: (laughs) All right. And also with us all the way from Tennessee is Mindy Cook. Hello, Mindy. Hello. Hello. So now
3: I'm wondering, does that make Jason our cinematographer?
0: (laughs) (laughs) man I think you could so. do dad jokes too i <laughs> got
3: the dad jokes yeah.
0: yeah as a dad i'm offended by these
2: jokes you both need to stop <laughs> as they're not good enough or or they're overshadowing you and you feel like you have to up your game well
0: i don't feel you have the right mm-hmm. oh okay one of you are a father you know like.
3: it's it's true i i am not a father i will uh do my best to stop stealing stealing your thunder here thank you
0: <laughs> so christian Josh. So much to talk about today. <laughs> uh, do we want to start with an update on the film?
1: Sure, we can start with an update. It has been a busy week here at The Girl Who Wore Freedom. Uh, we are still talking a lot about um, you know, what we're getting ready for in May and June. And this week has been about getting a DCP made and then shipping it to France. And the process for that has been Going through all of our subtitles, making sure that we have a completely subtitled film, partially in English, partially in French, Uh, getting that file from uh, Asheville, North Carolina to Nashville, Tennessee, which we did by post, Uh, and then James Thayer of Seek Seek Him First Productions in Nashville. James Thayer is our DCP provider. He's been doing that from the beginning. Uh, We've sent him a lot of business over the course of two years because we've had to have several DCPs produced. And he put those together along with grueling glory, the French version and the English version, which he gave us complimentary for all of our business. That was very nice. Thank you, James. And he then put those all on a drive and he shipped those to Michelle Coupe in France. And if you've never done this before, it is a process. Making a DCP file is not, um, is not cheap, nor is it easy. So the only a few people sort of specialize in this. So in order to make the Girl Who Wore Freedom DCP file, it cost us $780. So there was some shipping incurred from Nashville to Tennessee, you know, maybe 25 bucks. I had to buy a drive. So there was money there uh spent that could fit this big file. And then James put all three of these. It took about a week for him to put get all those files together and put them on a drive. And then he had to take them to the UPS store. It cost us $142 in order to ship it via DHL from uh Nashville, Tennessee to, to Normandy, France. So it's almost thousand dollars just to get this DCP file to France so that people can watch it this summer. Um, so when you're budgeting to, you know, send your film to film festivals, which is typically why you would need a DCP, or if you are doing a theatrical release, you need a DCP, um, you, ne- you definitely need a budget for that. Um, and the way that it typically works Is a DCP supplier will take the file and they'll put it on a dedicated drive and then they will take the responsibility of putting it in a Pelican case with a return shipment label. And so then they would ship it out uh, and then they charge you for the shipping of going there and coming back. And then the theater is supposed to be responsible for taking that drive, putting it into the Pelican case and sending it back. Um, We've had, we've run into situations where the theater hasn't. Really follow through with that, and we have to make sure that that happens. Uh, also, if we then want to take that that drive and ship it to a different theater, um, there's a rental fee now at this point, which is like thirty dollars, and for that trip plus the shipping. So, I mean, there's always costs involved in terms of shipping these DCPs around. Um, so, you need to build those into your budget from the very beginning before you start making stuff. Um, so now we're just waiting for it to arrive to Michelle Coupe. She will then become our fairy man and she will take that DCP to the D-Day experience where they will ingest the file from the DCP, from the drive into their, you know, uh, what do you call them, projectors. And then she will take that drive to the Caranton theater. They will ingest those files into their uh, projectors uh, and then we'll get the Drive back to James in Nashville, Tennessee. So that's the life cycle of a DCP file. um, And we've been focused on making sure that happens this week. Uh, We've also been, I've been working a lot with several different organizations uh, in New York City to try to get our screenings lined up, as well as with Airbus and Um, talking with the National Institute, or the National Infantry Foundation in Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, It's really possible that um, we're going to have a screening in Fort Benning sometime in April, in conjunction with my son Hunter just just finding out he got accepted into airborne school at Fort Benning, Georgia, where the National Infantry Museum is. So it's a three-week school, and he's not really um, started his Navy school, the second a uh, version of his Navy school. So he's gonna go for three weeks, go to airborne school. And at the end of that, have a graduation where he jumps out of a plane and all the family can watch. And so I'm gonna, of course, I wouldn't miss that. And so we, it would be amazing if we could show the film at the National Infantry Museum around that same time. So we're trying to make that work. And um, yeah, so, and, and trying to, we had super exciting news this week at the Girl Who War Freedom. Thank you, France, for dropping your vaccine requirement. We now have several people on our staff that can go with us. So, um, you know, I was worried because, you know, not everybody can get vaccinated. And so it's really limiting if people can... Can, you know, cannot go because they can't be vaccinated. And I was super sad about that. So we're so thankful to France. Um, now more of our team members get to go with us to France for the shooting that we're going to do about the Caranton project. So all of that stuff was what happened this week.
0: So, do you have a plan B for that film, Getting Over to France? Because um, you're talking about all the steps of getting it shipped and your, what'd you call her, your ferryman? Yes, <laughs> Michelle is my ferryman. <laughs> I mean, what happens if she gets lost? What happens if she, you know, I mean, do you have a plan B and C? Yeah,
1: Michelle is not going to get lost. The DCP could get lost between here and there. Also, the DCP could fail. So that doesn't happen often, but you always do have to
0: have a backup plan. So that's a
1: great question. The backup plan is a Blu-ray disc.
0: And where will that be?
1: Um. I'm not sure if I'm going to carry it with me or if I'm going to be um, sending it over there in advance. But you really do have to have a backup plan. Uh, and m- most theaters, if they play a DCP, will also be able to play a Blu-ray still. So that's what they suggest you use as your backup.
0: This was get your story was giving me uh, nightmare flashbacks to when I was interviewing with Big Idea Veggie Tales, and one of the interview questions was. Hey, we had this real scenario where we, you know, we're in Chicago, we had a film festival in Orlando, we were going to, you know, preview Larry boy, but whatever content they were using, it didn't work or it didn't arrive. And, you know, it was like five o'clock on Thursday and they're showing it on Friday and the, the guy interviewed me asked like, so what do you do? And I'm thinking, all I could think of was, well, now I'm not getting the job. I have no idea what I, <laughs> how am I supposed to know? And and I finally said, I have no idea. And he said, well, there are people flying down Friday morning, they'll just take a copy with them. I'm like, I didn't know that. How am I supposed to know you had a crew flying down Friday? <laughs> I was so mad, but I got the job anyway. So anyway. That's so, wonderful. Well. Just, uh, I learned you need to have backup
1: plans. Yeah, you certainly do. And in the military they'll tell you you have to have, you know, an A, B, and C plan really for redundancy. And I did learn I've learned that the hard way on several different occasions. When we made our initial DCP in 2019, which was just of the rough cut, um one of our team members here said they could make it. They made it. I took the drive over there and then the um the the projector at the D-Day Experience could not recognize the DCP that had been made. So that was a serious problem because I had veterans coming to that. It was a super huge screening and we had a really tough time. We've talked about this, I think, before with Bill, where um, we had to track down somebody in France to make a Blu-ray and that's nearly impossible to do now because they don't make the software to make Blu-rays anymore. So if you don't have the old software for making a Blu-ray, You're SOL. And so fortunately, we were able to find a way to make a Blu-ray. But, you know, there was a skip in that Blu-ray and my heart stopped like it was on original talking and he just froze and I froze and I'm like, Oh God, please don't let this happen. And then it just picked up and went along and there weren't any more. But I mean, that's another issue. Like I wanted to get the DCP over there. You have to make sure that theaters will watch that DCP all the way through, um, because there could be mistakes and you could have to do it again. So, um, thinking through those things is, super important and you need to give yourself enough time. Most people don't give themselves enough time when they're making a DCP and getting it to the theater to even if you have a, a you know a backup plan or a what we're going to do next, if you don't have enough time for that, it's a problem. So you always need to build in a lot of extra time to make sure if the DCP fails or doesn't arrive, you have a backup plan.
0: Time and money, those are always the two big issues, aren't they? For sure. Well, speaking of time, because we're running out of it, and we got to get to Mindy. Mindy is our special guest today. Mindy, how are you
3: doing? Well, Josh, how about you?
0: Good. And you're down in uh, Nashville or outside Nashville? Or I'm inside? in
3: Nashville. Yeah, you're
0: in awesome. How's yeah. the weather?
3: It's actually sunny right now, which is pretty great, because it was pouring rain today. And Nashville is prone to flooding. So been hoping that we don't get a whole lot more rain today. That would be really great.
0: <laughs> well, I think everyone from the north is trying to visit Nashville because Nashville is jacking up their prices for, for hotels right now because uh, everyone wants to get down there and listen to some music, eat some good food. Uh, Nashville's but,
3: jacking up their prices for everything right now. Rent's through the roof. There are very few homes on the market. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, uh, the the moniker Cashville applies uh, more, <laughs> more than ever right now. Um,
0: All right. So um, your your background is in production, and we're talking about cinematography today. Christian, do mm-hmm. you want to kick us off and kind of like yeah. what direction you want to go in, in, in uh, talking about cinematography? Sure.
1: Um, well, we have many back here because I don't often have the ability to do a really deep dive into to some subjects, and we've neglected cinematography up to this point because our cinematographer for The Girl Who War Freedom has not been able to be on the show, and so um, once we have Mindy here and she's in this process and she's going to be shooting for us um, going forward and particularly in our Carenton project, she, you know, we have this unique opportunity to talk to her about um, the that whole department of cinematography. And before we started with her, I wanted to just ask you and Jason, you know, w- some projects where the cinematography has stood out to you. When you're watching a movie, uh, and and I want the listener to think about this too, you know, when you've watched a movie and you've thought it was beautiful or moving or, you know, maybe well shot, I don't know, um, what movies come to your mind and tell me why you would say, I would give that person an award for cinematography. Jason, let's start with you.
2: Yeah, I think um some of my all-time favorite um cinematography in films that I've seen and not necessarily documentaries um would have to be almost everything by David Fincher. <laughs> I just absolutely love the way that his films almost feel clinical. They almost feel omniscient like they're they're god watching the film. Um and that that's a, there's a, some really interesting uh reasons why um that that i feel that way um his lighting is very naturalistic but also stylized so like you can be watching it and feel like yeah they're they're just a couple people in a bar having a conversation but the more you look at it, the more you're like wow this is really meticulously lit to make them feel totally natural but also stand out from everything in the background um and he also does uh, there's a fascinating little um uh uh, the words escaping me, um, like a video essay, video essay, um, about how he always tracks every little mo movement of a person. Like if a person shrugs, the camera slightly shrugs with the person. Like he, he locks in on the characters and sticks with them. And so that really gets you in tune with the characters. You feel like you're there with the characters. And so that's why almost every film by him, um, in particular, uh, Gone Girl or Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, like they just feel like you're in the room with the characters. And so those have really stuck out to me.
1: Great, great Uh, insights. I love that. Thank you. All right, Josh, what about
0: you? Well, I'll I'll answer a a different perspective. Uh, I think good cinematography, I don't really if it's a good film in general like things like that don't like you don't sit there and think man this editing is fantastic in the middle of the movie right and i don't sit there and think the cinematography is necessarily fantastic in the middle of the movie it's usually after a second or third viewing or or hearing someone talk about it and then you start paying attention to that thing but what does stand out to me is bad cinematography <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah i i remember watching uh, a low budget well, I assume it had to be a low budget uh, film. It was some Armageddon type film. And, and the lighting just stood out, the camera work just stood out, everything just stood out as obnoxious. And, you know, like, this is looks like something I would have done when I was 12 years old, like how it's like, it's like you spent no time or thought. And it totally distracted from the story. So good editing, good cinematography, I think doesn't take away from the film it doesn't distract it helps tell the story and then later you kind of look behind the curtain and and say wow I see why this was such a great film because of these different layers cinematography being one of them but bad sound bad cinematography bad acting you know those things jump out to you and then distract you from enjoying the film
1: absolutely and I would say for me sound is the biggest um the biggest hindrance if sound sound is bad i won't watch it just because i mean i can kind of handle the cinematography if it's bad or the editing if it's bad but if the sound is bad i won't watch it i can't it's terrible um the epi- the um uh example i want to give uh is i'd like to give you two one, I want to talk about Jojo Rabbit. If you haven't seen Jojo Rabbit, it's just such a phenomenal film. It's confusing at the beginning because you feel like they're um, you know, deifying Hitler, which they were not, but it you understand what they were doing after you get further into it. Um it's brilliant because it is absolutely stunningly beautiful. And how it is shot, how it is colored, how it is lit, how it is framed, um, makes you feel things, and it makes you pay attention to things. So the one example I was going to give is um, they choose to shoot um, the mother's shoes. And this theme of the mom is, in a sense, um, highlighted by the showing of her shoes. And her shoes are these 1940 red and white shoes that really stand out and are you know, particular to her, and they have incredible meaning uh, in the beginning, middle, and end of the film. And so that is, you know, in conjunction with the director, but a cinematographer usually, they, the the DP, the director of photography, will have thought about how they want the audience to feel, how that shot is set up, and and what they're going to do with that shot throughout the, you know, shooting of the film in order to carry the feeling through. Um, So anyway, that's, that's one positive example. One curious example for me, I don't know if you guys have been watching Inventing Anna, but it's a new series on Netflix, and it's fascinating to me um, how they choose to shoot some things. And one in particular that stood out to me as I was watching it this week, was there's a shot where the journalist is talking with Anna in prison and they're shooting. You you know what I'm talking about, Jason? They're shooting over her shoulder um, through this tiny little narrow band so you're—it's like you're sitting on Anna's shoulder. It's not even like you're Anna looking at you know the writer. It's that you are a third person in the room, peeking behind her shoulder. And I'm so curious as to why they chose to go in that direction. Um, and if I wasn't a filmmaker, I wouldn't be thinking that. I would be feeling something uh, there in that moment. Uh, but it just show, goes to show the power of the director of photography. He is as important as the editor or the director, or the sound, you know, um, department. So anyway, those are my examples. Now, Mindy, I want to ask you as a cinematographer or rising cinematographer, uh, talk to me about, uh, one of your favorite things or, you know, one that you hate.
3: Yeah, man, (laughs) I feel like as someone who works in camera department, that's a really loaded question and I'm going to be judged for it, but, um, One movie where I really love the cinematography is Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Um, there's a lot there Um, you know they shot in Iceland so you know just those beautiful vistas the light of those outdoor scenes um, so much of it uh, I just really fell in love with that style Um, but uh, there's also the difference between um, the way the scenes are shot outside when he's on his adventure versus inside uh, feels much more claustrophobic when he's in the corporate environment that sort of thing and so they made some really particular choices that led to that. And interestingly, I was listening to a podcast this morning with the cinematographer of a of a series that's on HBO right now called The Gilded Age, and he was talking about um, how he's made his choices with uh, both composition and lensing um, and a few other things. Uh, so The Gilded Age broadly speaking, is this battle between, um, old wealth and new wealth in, uh, 1920s New York, I think. Um, so, uh, when he shoots the scenes with the characters who represent, Old Money in New York. Um, he chose anamorphic lenses um, and he's much more formal in his composition. The camera never tilts um, and everything feels much more structured, which is very much how their lives were and how their attitude is. Um, and then he actually switches to spherical lenses for shooting the New Money New York, um, which um, I haven't heard a ton of people talk about switching between anamorphic and spherical within the same piece. And so that was just a really interesting discussion. He was talking about how he creates more space uh, for them, uh, how he allows himself more freedom with camera movement. There's a lot more camera movement when it comes to those people. Um, And is it so I often don't notice these things until I watch something a second time through I really try to let myself experience a, a story, the first time through because I found. Uh, when I was in college, I got way too analytical and I just couldn't enjoy film anymore, um, because I wasn't experiencing it and so i'm still on my first time through the gilded age it's in fact, the, I don't think the entire series is out yet um. So I hadn't gone back with a critical eye, although I really I noticed I really enjoyed the way that I was drawn into the story and um, there was a, a painterly aspect to some of the scenes that felt like it really fit the period that sort of time. So that's kind of two examples on the same theme of showing two very different attitudes and uh, some of what went into making that. Um, I would love to hear an interview with the cinematographer of uh, Walter Mitty too. I need to go see if there's one out there because I really enjoyed their work on that.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I um, know the stuntman that was Bill, Ben Stiller's stuntman, Greg Fitzpatrick, and he knows everybody on that film. So I'll ask him and he see see get you a one-on-one.
3: Oh, man. That would be incredible. That would be incredible. Yeah, that that was a movie that surprised me how much I love it. I was sick one day, and it was just was something to watch, and I put it on, and it was immediately drawn in, and I've watched it multiple times, and I love the soundtrack, I love the film, I love the storyline, all of it.
1: We had Greg Fitzpatrick in our house. Like I think last year, we watched it as a family, and so he would go through every episode and and show us and tell us how he did the stunts and how it was made. And it when you get that behind the scenes of a movie that you love, uh, there's nothing like that. That's super cool.
3: That's really cool. Also, he's a he has a dangerous job. <laughs> so that's that's a lot of commitment right there to be a stuntman.
0: For sure. Um, well, hey, speaking of jobs. Um, let's take a deeper dive into camera work, shall we? And Mindy, we want to l- rely on you. Um when you when you talk about the camera department, you know, there there's different roles. You know, what what are the jobs in the camera department?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, and that's something I've been figuring out over the last year or so. So I come from a background of what people would call video production, and it's much less structured, um, usually much smaller teams. And, you know, kind of came in with the idea of, um, you know, I think movies have too many people. (laughs) In their camera departments so I don't understand why I take so many people I mean I do this with one or two people why do they have 10 you know um but as I have started working on higher level productions and working my way up in the camera department on those higher level productions I've really come to understand why there are so many roles um and what those are so A brief overview, Uh, the director of photography or the DP is the head of the camera department um, and they often hire the people below them. and so they are also the liaison between the director and the entire camera department. Um, so they are the person who takes the director's vision and figures out technically, how are we gonna execute this? How are we gonna make it look like the director sees it in their head? Um, what cameras are we gonna use? Uh, what sort of lighting? Um, they take the first stab at lighting. I'll talk about G&E a little bit too. They are the ones who really execute that, but um, they are the person who takes kind of the artistic creative uh, vision and figures out okay how do we break that down into the very practical parts of cameras lenses lights um, framing composition all of that Um, and then below them um, you often have both camera operators and camera assistants Um, they have two different roles Uh, camera operators on a larger shoot uh, sometimes the dp will operate it totally depends on the dp um sometimes they like to sit with the director sometimes they sit with the dit who i'll talk about in a minute um, but uh, on multi-camera productions you'll have a cam operator b cam operator c cam operator etc um, on smaller productions you may just have the DP who's actually has their hands on the camera and is making the camera move and choosing the shots. Or you may have um, a camera operator who's doing that. Often they're on a headset with the DP and the DP is telling them generally what they want. But the operator also gets to make some creative choices about uh, framing and movement and that sort of thing. Um, and then you have the first AC, uh, a camera first AC is the kind of administrative head of the entire camera department. Um, they they take what the DP has told them, and they make sure that all the parts and pieces and people other than the operators are in line to make that happen and so um, for ACAM first AC on a major production. Um, Starts making sure that the rental houses uh, have what they need and will have it on the day. Um, They go and prepare the cameras at the rental houses. Um, If it's a multi camera shoot, they might take their other first ACs with them. Um, But they go, so when you arrive at a rental house, the cameras in pieces, you're handed a ton of cases that all have pieces in them, you have your lens case, you have your camera case, you have um, about 15 different pieces that are going to go onto the camera to make it function. It's not like they just hand you a Panavision camera and say, okay, see you by you have to build it the way that your operators want it. Um, And every operator has some specifics about what they want and how they want to put on the camera. Um, And then you have to test it all and make sure it works. Uh, Rental houses test the gear but the ACs are the ones who are responsible for showing up and saying, yes, I've checked all this gear and it's gonna function like it's supposed to. Um, And the batteries are charged and all of this. Um, So there's really like dozens of little pieces for every camera that's on a shoot um, and the first ac make sure that all that is ready to go um then you have the second ac and uh sometimes they get to go on prep sometimes they don't depends on the production and the budget uh but on set. Uh, the second AC is responsible for making sure that uh, the memory cards are ready for the camera that they've been formatted, um, that the camera doesn't run out of memory while it's going in and I'm talking uh, digital production because that's why I'm most familiar with, uh, I'll mention some film stuff but I am not a um, celluloid expert and so I, I can't speak to that. Um, but SecondAC handles uh, the memory cards, they handle the batteries. It's their job to make sure that nothing dies on set, uh, whether it's a camera or a monitor um, that sort of thing. So they've got a bunch of batteries they're making sure are charged and they're swapping those out on regular intervals and they're assisting the first AC with whatever they need. So on set, the first AC is often also a focus puller, meaning they have a little hand unit with a knob on it and they are in charge of making sure that the focus is sharp on every shot. Um, and so, um, you know, the really experienced ACs can do this by distance. They'll go, oh, that person's six feet from the camera and they'll know right where on their knob six feet is, and they can nail it that way. Um, with digital, especially 4K and above, it's getting harder to be right on. Um, I've I've talked to some ACs who are like, yeah, with film, you can get away with pulling even without looking at a monitor. Um, but with the you know, increased resolution, they want to be able to see it too, because there's a difference between like six feet and six feet inch, <laughs> you know and so they're there uh, making sure you know the eyes are sharp if the actor moves they can follow that movement um that sort of thing if it's a dolly shot they're tracking with the dolly as it goes um yeah and sometimes there's three planes of movement you know the dolly's coming in the camera's moving up and it's tilting or something like that um and so they're following all of that making sure it's sharp um and they're also kind of the person you go to if you need to talk to um, someone outside a camera department, you go to your first AC and you say, hey, such and such is going on, um, and they'll know who in the other departments to go talk to about that issue. Um, There's a pretty uh, structured chain of command on big shoots um, about who you talk to about what. Um, And then... Depending on the shoot, um, you may also have a media manager and that's someone who's responsible for downloading the information off the cards. Um, And like Christian was talking about with the DCP file, you need to make sure that you have backups. So uh, industry standard is at least two drives. So you're putting everything on at least two hard drives. Sometimes there's more than that. Um, I know when I shoot, I do two hard drives and if possible, if I have enough cards, I keep my cards too until I know that the footage has Arrive safely. I also try not to put the drives on the same plane flying back. Um, I try and make sure that you know if the plane goes down, we still have the footage. So, um, so media manager handles that, uh, or sometimes you have someone who's a DIT, and they're also responsible for the cards, but they have skills beyond that. They know how to color correct on set. They'll help you develop LUTs, which is a um, abbreviation for lookup table, which. Um, is a color correction file format so they'll be developing those so that you can look at your footage on set and see how it will look once it's color corrected Um, sometimes they do some assistant editor type stuff and help prepare the dailies which is the shots the uh, director and some others often producers want to look at the dp want to look at at the end of each day to see what they've gotten um So the DIT handles all that and possibly some more stuff. I I am not a DIT. It's one area I probably won't work in because I don't want that much responsibility (laughs) and I'm not quite that techy. So they, That's a very, very specialized uh, part of camera department. Um, Sometimes you have someone who's called VTR and they're responsible for just making sure all the monitors on set work, that they're all connected via um, either wireless or wired connections to the cameras so that not only can the camera operator see what they see, but the DP can see it and the director can see it. Um, If it's a commercial suit, the client can see it. There's so many people who want to be able to see everything that's happening uh, on the other side of those cameras. Sometimes you have a video utility, they kind of do the same thing, plus whatever else needs to be doing. And uh, if you're lucky, you get a camera PA who uh, does whatever anybody needs them to do and gets coffee and crafty and all that stuff. Um, Because honestly, in my experience, camera department doesn't have a lot of extra time because they're often, they need to be first up and going so that the director and the DP and the gaffer and everybody can make educated decisions. So the camera has to get up very quickly and be able to be looked through so that everybody can start making their creative decisions. And then you can't break the camera down till everybody's, you know, all the actions finished. And so it's, um, it's a lot of get it up quickly, make sure it all works the way it's supposed to and then move on um, but there's there's usually not a lot of downtime for camera department.
0: So that's a lot. It
3: is. It's a lot. And that would be a very large production. Um and I I should also specify I'm speaking from a non-union perspective. I am a non-union uh, AC in Nashville.
0: So, well let's say you're a young filmmaker and you want to, you know to get a crew together, you know, how do you find good people to shoot a film
3: yeah that's a great question um so there's a couple different perspectives to come at this uh one is who can you afford <laughs> you know so um you know we're talking people working high levels in this they want their day rates and those day rates are not cheap and so um you know if you're wanting to hire you're going to need some money and it comes down to you know who can you either afford to hire or who can you interest enough in your project uh to you know for this to be something they want to work on i will say with that though it's not cool to ask people to work for free it's really not there needs to be some exchange of value there so whether it's you're giving someone a chance to work in a position that they need more experience in to really be at a level where they can get paid for that or if you swap off with some friends you know they work on your project you work on theirs um that sort of thing there's there's ways to trade value but there definitely needs to be value to be had and exposure is not adequate value um promising someone you know oh, you know you'll get so much exposure from this project that that's not cool either um so you know the, and this is this is part of the struggle of being a young or a early in your career filmmaker is you know, wanting to get the best quality you can, um, and being limited by your budget. And so, you know, it's, it's, you gotta just know what, know who your friends are, know what your network is, find ways to provide value somewhere or another, get creative with it, um, and be willing to invest some money. You're, you're gonna have to spend some money somewhere and whether it's on gear or labor or, or what, um, but you know, you can work with less experienced people and know that it's probably going to take longer. Um, and there's probably going to be more mistakes. You can work with a smaller camera department, maybe just a DP and an AC who does everything and media manages or something, um, and you know, do as much as you can afford, but realize. You're probably not going to have the same uh bandwidth that a large crew has and the same perfection that a large crew has. Um, and everything's gonna just take longer. Yeah, it's this whole you, you've heard, you know, you can um you have to pick two out of three. You can have it um fast, good, or cheap. So you can have it fast and good, but it won't be cheap. <laughs> um, you can have it uh cheap and good, but it won't be fast, you know, that sort of thing. I feel like that very much applies here, and you just have to figure out what your trade-offs are and what serves your story best, Um, but always take good care of your people. You always have to take good care of your people.
1: I remember Sandy Gordon. That was the first major lesson she taught me as a producer was the camera department um, including the gaffers, which are the electricians, um, gaffers were- in
3: charge of lighting,
1: lighting. Sorry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and the electricians and all of yes, the people that yes. are in charge of the electric stuff. Um, all of those people are doing the heavy lifting. They're actually physically doing stuff. And the, the people that I've met in those departments, they don't like to take breaks. When they're in the zone, they want to stay in the zone and they won't stop to go to the bathroom. They won't stop to get water. They won't stop to eat. And so, you know, Sandy basically said to me, you really have to make sure that breaks are built in and that you're paying attention to what they're doing. Otherwise, they're just going to keep going. Um, And I think people in those departments can feel that love from a producer or they can also feel taken advantage of. So that's a very good note, I think, Mindy.
3: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, some of it's, we're all very aware of who's waiting on us, any experienced crew member who you know, really cares about a project where we know that if we don't get this done quickly, someone else is going to be held up. We also know it's going to make our day longer. you know, And so we're all very motivated to keep, keep that going. Um, and speaking to the heavy lifting part so as an ac it's not uncommon for me to put in three to four miles a day of walking on set and that's usually with heavy gear um i recently got a cart so my cart is super helpful now i can push a lot of things on wheels now but uh, tripods uh, high-end cameras those lenses, they're not light, uh, you know, cameras, 15, 20 pounds, easy and up depending on what sort of camera it is and what sort of glass you have on it. Um, so, you know, that's often on someone's shoulder, the The tripod weighs, the tripod in that weighs range, too. so
1: heavy, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, and you also like I, that reminds me of the weather. So I, I remember I was working with a camera woman, we were doing an inside edition thing and we got stuck in snow apocalypse. I think it was 2000. 2011, and we were supposed to ride with the snow plow, and that didn't end up happening so we were walking around doing interviews and I had to carry the tripod in, you know, a foot of snow. and. That happens a lot. Camera people are out in the elements, whether it's snow or rain or hot sun, Uh, you know, directors can sit underneath an umbrella or, you know, inside a truck, you know, because all you have to do is look at a monitor. But I mean, these guys and girls are out on the front lines and it's a physically demanding job.
3: It is. It is. So that's, that's another reason to take good care of your people. And, you know, a lot of people in this field are in it because they love it. And so they're going to do their best for you because they love what they're doing and anything you can do to take care of them is going to uh, pay itself back to you in dividends of them being able to do their job better. You know, if I'm, if I'm not dehydrated, I'm going to do a whole lot better (laughs) at the work that I'm doing if, and if I'm dehydrated and hungry. Um, so yeah, but, um, You know, so it's. I haven't actually gotten to work on a uh, project yet that has the full crew. So for me on um, mostly commercial jobs right now, uh, I'm working with a a DP, a first AC. I'm often second AC because my focus pulling skills aren't quite up to par yet. Um, And in Nashville, as a second AC, I often media manage as well. I have some friends who are uh, ACs in LA, and they would not be happy knowing that. So um, the LA ACs would be like, no, that's a totally separate position. Um, It should be a different hire. And it should, you know, but our budget's Aren't where they could be to make that happen. And so it often ends up being combined with tech and AC on some smaller jobs. Um, but you're taking a risk. You know, my attention is split between making sure the cards get dumped and making sure that nothing's dying on set uh, and running out of battery power. Um, and so, you know, there's more room for error because of that. Um, And also I'm not a DIT. Um, I don't have quite the knowledge on that that someone else could uh, to make sure that that was done, you know, more perfectly. But but yeah, camera crews come in all sizes. Sometimes you just have a DP on set uh, for really small projects. And then sometimes you have the whole slew. Uh, I named plus a whole GE department, which is the gaffer who's in charge of how the lighting looks, electricians who are in charge of making sure everything is powered correctly and you're not gonna blow any fuses and sometimes saying a massive generators to make sure you have electricity in the first place um, and uh, grips who move things and build things. And I mean, this is where you start seeing names like best boy and best girl and key grip. And it says names in the credits where you're like, what does that person do? <laughs> you know, um, but they're they're making sure everything is built and powered and, and the gaffer's in charge of making sure that the um, lighting feels like the director of photography has asked for it to feel. So they're the person who comes in and says, okay, I need so many of these fixtures and so many of those fixtures and we're going to fly these up here and we're going to, you know, put these on such and such percentage. And then they work with the director of photography to get dialed in for exactly what they want so that the director's vision is then realized. I mean,
1: you know, Josh, what what is it? What does it do to your ears when you hear all of these specific roles and things they do and all of the people there?
0: What do my ears do? Your brain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's overwhelming. Yeah, I I'm just imagining all these people, um it it takes a lot. I mean, if you stick around for the credits for any film, you there's a, a gajillion names on there and and you're just talking about the camera crew, right? You know, so uh, it's overwhelming and someone's got to be the leader of all that. Uh, and that's a, an ambitious, um, maybe it makes me tired. That's what it does. It makes me tired because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot to be done.
3: Yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, talking to filmmakers early in their career, it's really about finding the balance between what you can afford in like the level of excellence or perfection you expect, you know? Um, And there's people who pull off amazing things with tea, tiny little crews, you know? Um, And those are really amazing creative endeavors because you're doing so much with so little. Um, Speaking of that, Mindy,
1: we, if you look at the Girl Who Worth Freedom, which I hope everyone listening has, we had ADP who did everything. It, it, he didn't do DIT, but even our DIT guy didn't do a DIT.
3: Um, <laughs> it. DIT. I'm glad a- you ended up with a the film then, because that's <laughs> risky.
1: <laughs> it, was, it was a nightmare. It was oh, an man. utter, utter nightmare that we did not have anybody doing DIT. We didn't do dailies. I mean, we just mm-hmm. couldn't with what we were doing, the budget that we had. But I mean, imagine, I mean, our film is beautiful. Our it film is. is beautiful. It was so well shot. And it really was because of Corey Lillard. He did everything. And, you know, my mind is blown by that. Uh, You're right. You can get really good stuff, you know, but like I said before, there were a lot of mistakes made as well. And Mm -hmm. we did pick the best of, you know, um, of everything. So,
3: Yeah, yeah, I think based off what I've heard you say about some choices you had to make in your edit, like there are things that could have been different with a larger crew because you would have had the bandwidth yeah. to see it on set and to fix it in the moment yeah. and that that's really one of the biggest sacrifices you're looking at is Well, other than like a DIT not doing their job and possibly not having your footage show up, you know, because that's a problem. Um, But it really is that ability to have time and bandwidth on set to fix it, then to make something happen then um, so that you're not in the edit room later going, oh, I wish we had, you know, or, oh, that, that shot wasn't quite as sharp as it should have been, you know, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Awesome. All right, Josh. Well, so great, great stuff, Mindy. Thank you.
3: You're welcome. Thank you
1: you're so welcome. much.
0: Before we wrap up, we're going to uh, do a quick uh, mini segment. I'll be honest with you. I don't know what we call it anymore. <laughs> now it, it's de, hold, now. It deja it's, vu, docu
1: No, no, no. Now it's time for our
0: new segment.
1: Docu view, deja, deja vu. There we go. Okay.
0: So I was Are, wrong. I didn't, I, a, or yeah. I was right. I didn't know.
1: Doc, you deja vu. Thank you, Jeff Gertnacker. All right. So uh, I'm going to start with Jason. We haven't heard you talk a lot. So talk to us about a documentary today that you've thought about.
2: Yeah. um, So this documentary, I think it's kind of fitting that we're talking about this um, on the cinematography episode because this Film, in my opinion, does not have great uh, cinematography, and I think part of it is because it was really early in the digital revolution. Um, so this movie is Inside Job from 2010. Uh, it won best documentary film in in 2010 and won the Oscar. Um, have any of you seen this movie?
1: I have not, but I've wanted to.
2: Okay, so it's about the 2008 financial crisis and how it happened, and so they interview all these really fascinating people, but. It's, it's shot on a red one digital camera um, and <laughs> everything is super deep focus. So like, and, and it all feels like it's shot on a crazy long zoom lens. So like, oh, we're going to interview this guy in his office. And it looks like he's, you know, got his back up against a, a, a bookcase and you can read every single title on the bookcase behind him. And it just, it's visually distracting from a fantastic um story about the 2008 financial crisis and how all these different people and, and actors really came together now it's got together with news footage and b-roll and all these other things too but when it cuts the interviews it always distracted me every time i've watched this film i've just been like <laughs> it, it i i just get lost in looking at you know this guy who's in you know what looks like an airport for some reason and you can see all the way down the hallway behind him and it's in sharp focus and it feels really digital and it doesn't feel like it was colored well and it but it won best you know best documentary at the academy awards that year story Um,
1: king story is king my friend (laughs)
2: <laughs> yep exactly and it, it is a fantastic story i've I've watched it several times and just thinking about it again makes me want to go rewatch it um it was actually originally shot in 2k on a red one oh. so it's a very odd it, it's again is when they were trying to figure out what digital really was and how you can make films with it
1: mm. cool and where can you watch it now
2: um i have it on amazon but i think i bought it so let me just dig around and see if i can find it
1: All right, and while he does that, Mindy, why don't you tell us what you came with today?
3: Yeah, so this is a film I've wanted to mention for a couple episodes now, and I just keep forgetting the name of it. Um, It is called Blowing Up, um, and that's with an N on the end, not with a G. Um, And it is the amazing story of a particular courtroom in New York City, um, actually the Queens Criminal Court. And a judge and a team of advocates there who really changed the way that uh, women facing prosecution for prostitution uh, were treated in that court. And it's an amazing story of combination of justice and mercy and advocacy. Um, And it's one of those stories that you'd never really hear about unless you happen to see the film about it. And that's one of my favorite things about documentary is getting this intense inside look at a story about a group of people making a difference that you'd never hear about. Otherwise there's no way you'd like just run into them. Um, And so, you know, obviously, not family friendly with the subject matter, but um, really well told story, amazingly compelling characters. Um, cinematography is an interesting angle on this one because it's a lot of um, cinema verite in the courthouse and you don't have a lot of control over your lighting and things like that in the courthouse. Uh, they also have to pre- protect the identity of some of the women that they interview. So that's always an interesting thing to look at from a cinema talk um perspective as well. Uh, but again, story is king. And I really think they did the best they could with what they had um, and tell a really amazing story about, um, I, I guess, redemption is kind of the key key there uh, in this story. So it's available for rent or purchase on Amazon. Um, Sometimes it cycles through Prime. So if you have Prime, it might pop up uh, as available there, but uh, definitely worth, I think it's like three bucks to rent it. Um, Yeah, $2.99. If you're looking for a really well-told documentary story, go check that one out. Awesome, thank you. I'm going to give you mine, and then Josh, I'll let you go
1: last, and then you can wrap us up. Uh, mine is called. Um...
0: We we lost you. Yeah, We're everybody
3: muted. got muted somehow.
2: Yeah, we all became muted at the same time.
0: <laughs> Christian's watching. A Christian, movie. You're, you're still, still... muted. <laughs> He was watching a movie earlier while we were trying to have a conversation and just
2: totally <laughs> tuned us out.
1: I don't know what happened. My, space, my space bar wasn't working. I don't know what, how that and
2: happened. And somehow it I did. think he muted all of us, too. <laughs>
1: That's crazy. Um, okay. Well, I'm going to share with you a beautifully shot documentary called My Octopus Teacher. And it is a phenomenal film, mostly shot underwater. Uh, you can find it on Netflix and it is a beautiful story. So it's a story about how uh, this, um, you know, filmmaker was taking time off to really reevaluate his life and slow things down. And, He ended up making friends with an octopus who really um, taught him to look at his life and life in general in a completely different perspective. Uh, And because it was shot underwater, um, I mean, there's just so many things about this film. I could talk forever about how it was shot and the story and uh, just uh, on a deep spiritual level, the truths that were communicated to me were profound. So, uh, yep, my octopus teacher, look it up on Netflix. All right, Josh,
0: you're up. All right, I'm bringing uh, the 2018 documentary about Mr. Rogers, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Yes, love that. There's two films that came out about Mr. Rogers, this documentary, and then the one with Tom Hanks. The one with Tom Hanks I thought was great, but if if I had to watch one again, it would definitely be the documentary. agree. That one was uh, very powerful. So if you haven't seen it, you can watch it on HBO Max or rent it on... I know you can rent it on Apple TV right now. So, but excellent, excellent film. And uh, especially if you grew up watching him, but even if you didn't, it's still worth seeing.
1: I love it because uh, Fred Rogers talks for himself. And so you can really get behind the man when you watch that documentary. It's great. Good one. thanks for bringing that, Josh.
0: Yep, yep, of course. And uh, speaking of thanks, we want to thank our listeners. For being here today and dealing with our, or well, I should say, Christian's uh, technical difficulties. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> I'm just teasing. Uh, but thank you, Mindy Cook, for being here uh, and sharing all of your knowledge. I hope you all were taking notes. Um, and again, to our listeners, thank you uh, for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you could be the one to tell it.
1: Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you for listening, donating, and following along on our journey. We are supported by generous donations from people just like you. To make a donation, visit thegirlwhowarfreedom.com or support us on Patreon at patreon.com documentaryfirst. To learn more about our other works in progress, visit documentaryfirst.com or follow Documentary First on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This podcast was produced by Documentary First, edited and mixed by Jason Hoban, with music by Jeff Kurtenacker.